maybe one or two here not with us last week. We were considering the book of Habakkuk, noticing in chapter 1 there are problems and perplexities. The problem of unanswered prayer, and then the equally perplexing difficulty of prayer that was answered, but not in the way in which it was expected to be answered. God was going to bring an, an ungodly nation, the Chaldeans, up upon the land of Judah to destroy the land, and Habakkuk could not understand how God could use an ungodly nation that boasted in their, in their own gods, in their own idols, and he would allow that nation to conquer the land of Judah. And faced with the issue of becoming peevish or prayerful, he chose to be prayerful, and he comes to where we are in chapter 2, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon my tower and watch to see what he will say unto me. We mentioned one or two things unique to this book, and certainly one thing that bears repetition is, it is the only book in our Bible that is a conversation between God and man, or God and a man. There's no action, there are no events that occur. The closest thing in the book is the book of Jonah, but even in the book of Jonah, even though there's dialogue between God and his prophet, there's action, there are events. There's the swallowing up of Jonah by the great whale, there's the repentance of Nineveh, and so on. And uh, there are events in that book, and along with the dialogue. But here in the book of Habakkuk, it's just the conversation of a man and his God as he wrestles with some tremendously difficult ethical moral issues about how God does things. And we come then to chapter number two, and I'll just suggest to you that in chapter two, God gives to his prophet five principles, if you will, five things that will help him. He doesn't explain his ways necessarily. He doesn't justify his actions to his prophet, but he will give five things that will be the means by which Habakkuk will be able to be stable in the midst of a very, very perplexing set of circumstances. The first thing you notice is he gives him a promise to lean upon. He tells him in those verses, though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. So he reminds him that amidst all the perplexity he has, amidst all the uncertainty, if he is just patient, if he just waits God's time, he will recognize, he will see the end of God's dealings and how perfect God's timetable is relative to human events. God does not work according to our timepieces. We sometimes have his plans all worked out for him. We know exactly when he should intervene. We know exactly when that person should be saved, exactly when certain things should occur in the assembly. But we find, to our amazement, as we go through the word of God, that God's timetable is uniquely his. Someone has well said that even when God is slow, he's on time. He's on time. There are actually two words now. They don't come across in our authorized version. Two different words used in verse number three. Though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. Two different words are used there in the original language for the word tarry. The, the first word that is used there is one that means to, to be delayed. And the second one that is there means for someone to be late. God is saying, even though it appears to be delayed, it will not be late. Everything will occur exactly according to my timetable. And so it is interesting because what we'll come to and what we did read in chapter 3 at the very beginning 
You notice what he said uh, in, in those verses, the very beginning of chapter number three. Oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. God was giving him a long view of things. Here's the long view. And he sees the long view, but he's crying out. Even now, in the midst of years, do something now. Revive thy work now in the midst of years. Yes, the future is secure. Yes, we can see the glorious end, but even now we'd long to see God working. And of course, that is a mirror, isn't it, of our own hearts. Someone as well said that uh, we've read the end of the story. We know how it ends. We know that God wins. But we'd long to see something even now in the midst of years, see God working and see God blessing and God saving. But we learn here, here is a promise you can lean on. You can be absolutely sure of this, that God will bring everything to its conclusion in his own time. Notice he, uh, he tells him in these verses, he said, I want you to write it. I want, you, I want it to be absolutely clear, the clarity of it, first of all. And then he says, the permanency of it. Write it as well. Put it down for everyone to read. I want everyone to know that I will accomplish my purposes in my time. So here's a promise he gives that he's able to depend upon. Isn't it wonderful to go through the Word of God and notice the exquisite timing of God? We would have all, if we were reading this, if we were writing the story of, of Mordecai and Esther, we would have, uh, we would have thought, you know, the, uh, the time to intervene, the, the time to overthrow this Haman, the time to bring about deliverance for the children of Israel is uh, the, the, the moment that Mordecai goes in and informs Esther and she informs others of the plot against the king. And yet the chapter ends with... Uh, Haman being exalted and Mordecai just sitting in the gate, the man of sorrows in the gate. It wasn't God's timing. That's when we would have intervened. But God heightens things, doesn't it? He, he, it's almost like a, a, a dramatic crisis in the book, uh, a master plot that God is unfolding and at the right moment God intervenes and the gallows is built and the very gallows that Haman builds for Mordecai becomes the gallows that Haman himself will occupy. And so we are reminded in the first thing that we see, the vision is yet for an appointed time. At my time, at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, and so on. And so he's reminding us here of the absolute certainty of God's promise. It will happen in my time. So often we, as we pray and as we wait upon God and long for answers, we want them now. And rightly so in many cases, we have loved ones unsaved. We, we think of people who have left the assembly, people who are cold in heart, difficulties in families and, and all the rest. And we're crying to God to answer now. God says, I have my time. I have my timetable. And it is assured, it is accurate, and you can anticipate it in its own time. It's interesting as well. And I think this is a tremendous encouragement to us all. You notice that Habakkuk says, I will go to my tower and watch and I sh what I shall answer when he reproves me. You notice God never rebukes Habakkuk. God doesn't say to Habakkuk, how could you possibly, with all you have known of me, with your role as a prophet, with your role as someone who has witnessed for me and spoken, Habakkuk, how could you ever begin to question my ways? Habakkuk, there's a back seat for you, and I don't want you taking any part. You're going to be silenced for at least a month before we'll let you... No, not how God does things. 
There's no reproof. Re, reproof. There's no rebuke. There's not even a, a belittling of the of the prophets wavering. It's just, isn't it? You read that, you cannot help but remember how the Lord dealt with John the Baptist. In that hour when John was, was questioning, art thou he that should come or look we for another? Don't be hard on John. Because he had preached about a Messiah who would come. And among the many things the Messiah would do is he would release the captives. John was still captive. And he may have been in prison for a year. It's difficult to put dates to, and time on. He may have been in prison for a year. And as far as we know, not only did the Lord not get him released, the Lord never visited him. <clears throat> never visited. And he didn't even attend his funeral. And so John is wavering. And John is questioning. And John sends disciples to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus praises John rather than belittling him. Go and tell John what you have seen. And when the messengers leave, he tells the people, what went you out to see? I mean, here is a man, and he gets the highest compliment any human being ever got. Among them born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. He gets the highest compliment in his darkest hour. The Lord Jesus is so different than how we treat others. He is so gracious, so kind, so gentle. And so here we see in the way that God deals with this prophet, that he is, instead of giving him a, a rebuke, he gives him a promise, a promise that he can lean on. But then he gives him a principle to live by, a principle to live by. Now. Okay, it's going to come, but what about in the meantime? In the meantime, here's the contrast. He says, the, those who are proud, the soul which is lifted up in him is not... A, there are those who are lifted up and proud and haughty and self-confident. But he says, in contrast, the just shall live by his faith. So amidst the darkness, amidst the perplexity, amidst the, why is God allowing this in my life? Why is God allowing this in our assembly? Why is God allowing this in the world around us? Amidst all of that, here is the principle that God gives. The just shall live by his faith. Now that's going to take a bit of unpacking. For the simple reason that we have, I think, I hope not, but I think that uh, we have a wrong concept of what it means to live by faith. In the minds of many people, living by faith is what preachers and missionaries do because they don't know where their paycheck is coming from. Yeah, they're living by faith, but... If you're a mother raising children, I hope you're living by faith. If you're a man who has your own business, I hope you're living by faith. If you're an employee for a firm, I hope you're living by faith. You say, well, what do you mean? Faith is putting into my life, into practice, the principles of the Word of God. Let me give you that in contrast. And I hope this is not true of anybody here, but next week you go to the doctor's after a series of tests and you get the diagnosis, uh, I've got cancer. And uh, you go home and you pray about it and you open your Bible and you happen to read there about Jehovah Rafika. I am the Lord that healeth thee. And that's it. That's my word. I'm going to be healed. There's no question. I'm going to be healed. And my cancer's going to go away. I'm going to tell everybody I'm going to be healed. And you say, that's living by faith. No, it's not. 
Faith always has the word of God as its basis. Let me put it another way. You might say, I have faith that Sunday night we're going to have 100 unsaved people in, the town, in from the town to hear the gospel, and if I believe hard enough, it's going to happen. That's not faith. That's hope. Well, not even hope. It's wishful thinking. Okay? It's wishful thinking. It'd be wonderful if it happens. But now, if God's word somehow said, Sunday night, 100 people will come into the hall to hear the gospel, faith believes what God says. Faith always has the word of God as its basis. It does not say, well, now, I'm going to believe hard enough and it's going to happen. Or I'll take something out of context from the Word of God. I'll, I'll take something that has nothing to do with me and I'll apply it to my life and I'm going to make it happen because it's... No. Faith is believing what God says. Now, you may say, well, then what does faith have to do with, with moving in, in a world of uncertainty and, I, and all this is happening and... Faith is just this. I can rely upon the character of God revealed in his word. I can, we, we spoke of that last week where in chapter 1, he ended there in chapter 1 by referring to uh, God who is faithful, God who is forever, God who is firm as a rock, it's just depending on the very character of God. And so what faith does is, faith takes what it has learned of God in the light and it carries it into the dark of life's circumstances and holds on to it and holds on to who God is. Now, I said that living by faith is something that every single believer does. So the businessman who runs his business, according to the principles of this book, that's living by faith. Your competitors would laugh at you they would be able to tell you ways of, uh, of cooking the books, of ways of shifting money around to uh, avoid taxation and avoid report. They, they would know all the tricks to play. And a mother raising her children today by the principles of this book, that's raising your family by, by faith. It's not the idea that I don't know what's going to happen. It's the idea that I will put into my life the principles of God's word. And whether it is the character of God that I hold on to amidst darkness and trial, or whether it is living according to the word of God day by day, I will live by faith. And I will put into practice the truth of the word of God. So the just shall live by his faith. Now there's you know, arguments, is it? Is it the body of truth or is it my own particular confidence in that body of truth? Well, in a way, it's both. But I think here, it's particularly by, by his faith, by his absolute assurance of all that God is and of all that God has promised in his word, that the end is in sight and that God will bring it all to pass in his own time. And so he says here, here you are amidst all this perplexity, amidst all the darkness of your circumstances, amidst the fact that I am going to use a wicked nation to come in and to ravish the nation of, of Judah. He says, that all may seem very, very difficult for you to understand, but the just, those who are righteous, will live on the principle of, of faith. And that is what is left for all of us in, when we're faced with circumstances beyond our understanding. I was, uh, some of you are probably aware of it, it was just uh, last Thursday I was waxing eloquent on this, and Friday I got word, and some of you probably as well did, uh, a dear missionary woman in Botswana 
serving the Lord there for 50 years, driving her husband home from a distant area where they had gone to pick up literature. Her Jeep, the Jeep overturned and she was killed instantly. And you ask why? And my mind went to what I had just been speaking about. The perplexity of life's circumstances. Why someone so useful, someone who was called a mother in Israel in that area of Botswana, known by thousands of people, Mrs. Legg, suddenly tragically taken home and a husband who depended upon her for so much suddenly left alone. What do you tell a person in those circumstances? All things work together for good, really? I'd be ashamed to quote that to someone going through those kinds of trials. Those are all true statements, but they can come so easily from our lips. In the end, the just lives by faith, having absolute confidence in this God that he is in control of everything, whether it's nations, whether it's individuals, whether it's families. Here is a God who is in control of everything. It's interesting that uh, this is only one of the this is one of the only two times in the Old Testament we have the word faith. The other time is in Deuteronomy 32. Now, having said that, the original word for faith is translated many times truth or faithful, and that word is found perhaps almost 50 times in our Old Testament. But as far as when the translators actually translated faith, it's only two times: Habakkuk and Deuteronomy. And here it's the just shall live by his faith. And all of you know that that verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. And each time, there's a slightly different emphasis. Amazing what, uh, what God can take out of one verse. You know, some of us would take, would need a hundred verses to say something. God takes a little statement of six words and can preach three sermons from it. And so when you're looking at that verse in light of the New Testament, he uses it in Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, he's emphasizing the just. When you come to the epistle to the Hebrews, where he uses it again, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's shall live, and where he uses it in Galatians, is it the third time, it is, the emphasis is on by faith. So the three different times that is quoted in our New Testament, whether all three are Paul or not, depending on your view of Hebrews, Spirit of God uses those six words in three different words to stress three different principles that justification is by faith, that we live by faith, and that it is by faith that everything comes to us. And so three times over in our New Testament, this word is, is used. It is important to notice and Hebrews 11 alone would, would, would substantiate it, but just need to point out that in every age, those that please God, please God by living on the principle of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so I gather in light of that, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, I gather in light of that, that the measure in which our lives are marked by faith, to that measure they bring pleasure to God. Now again, I'm saying, the housewife in the home, the mother raising her children, the employee at work, the manager, mid-level executive, whatever sphere it may be, 
As I bring into my life principles of the Word of God and allow them to control me and to mold my life and mold my behavior under those circumstances, I am then able to bring pleasure to God. I think that is incredibly wonderful to consider that uh, here is a principle to live by. So there's a promise that you can lean upon. There's a principle you can live by. But then he says, uh, there's a proclamation I want you to lay to heart. And uh, he doesn't say it in so many words, but as you're reading down through, through verses 6, 7, and 8, it's just this. Here is what God says. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And he, he reminds them of those who are heaping to themselves treasure and those who are heaping to themselves the cities and so on. And even and he mentions there a taunting proverb against them that say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee? In other words, what he's saying is, you have done this, but you will reap one day what you have sown. Here is God's inviolable principle in the spiritual realm, the principle of reaping and sowing. And so as Habakkuk is somehow trying to understand this wicked nation, boasting itself in its idols, claiming its idols have overcome Judah, and wondering how could God ever allow that. God says, there's a promise you can lean upon. I'll take care of things in my time. There's a principle in the meantime to live by, and that principle is that just shall live by faith. But he says as well, here's something I want to proclaim to everyone, and it's just this, that whatever a man sows, he will reap. Now thank God Thank God in our own lives, grace can triumph over that. That doesn't excuse intentional high-handed rebellion against God because we will reap what we have sown. But thank God that as far as our sins of the past and many of our blunders in the present, grace is able to overcome and bless us despite our failures. But for those who live in rebellion against God, this principle is absolutely assured. Whatever a man sows, he'll also reap. I think one of the best examples of this, you recall that when uh, that first, I was almost going to call it glorious, that first triumphant moment when uh, Israel came in and began to invade the land of Canaan, you recall that in chapter 1, they, uh, they conquered a king called Adonai, Adonai Bezek, and they cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And he said, uh, I've done that to a lot of kings, and they've had to grovel under my table. Now God has done it to me. I think in that little snippet of Scripture, we have tremendous insight that what God intended was to use his nation of Israel in their dealings with the Canaanite nations. Number one, to righteously judge them and secondarily to reveal his character to them. That evil, wicked, ungodly king had to own. God is righteous. Now had Israel continued on that path, what a blessing they would have been, but soon instead of judging their foes and the Canaanites in the land, they became assimilated amongst them. 
But nevertheless, you understand that the principle of sowing and reaping. Jacob is another prime example of one who sowed and reaped. And it's remarkable as well. If you trace the life of David, David was marked by tears. But there comes a big division in his life when it comes to tears. Prior to his sin with Bathsheba, all of his tears were because of what others did to him unrighteously, mainly Saul. Once he sinned with Bathsheba, all the tears from that point on, he's reaping what he has sown, and he loses all of his sons and weeps over it. Tears mark both parts of his life, but the tears at the end of his life were far more bitter than the tears at the beginning of his life. <coughs> A proclamation to lay to heart. But then we're reminded here in this lovely verse, verse number 6, 14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here is not now a promise to lean upon, not now a prospect to look to, not now a proclamation to lay to his heart. Here's a prospect to look to, a prospect to look to. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That scripture again is used in multiple places in our Old Testament and it usually occurs with just a slight variation. See if you can catch this difference in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14 is the chapter where the spies have come back and they've given a, a, a bad report as it's called and the uh, people say we will not go into the land. We just won't go in. The giants are there. We can't possibly go in. And in Numbers 14, here's what God says. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, man's failure, even the failure of the, of the, of the nation of Israel, will not frustrate God's purposes. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It will happen. Nothing can frustrate it. You recall that uh, when David is praying that wonderful psalm, Psalm 72, when he speaks of the coming Messiah and he thinks of the, of the blessings the earth will know and the blessing humanity will know, he says, let the whole earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. In other words, now is my longing, my prayer. Let it happen. And he says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. I could ask for nothing more than this tremendous thing, that the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Isaiah speaks of it. You recall when he saw the, the Lord high and lifted up upon his throne. And for a servant to serve God, he has to be assured of this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. That God is going to take me up, a frail mortal servant. He's going to use me in some way. And I have the privilege of advancing what is eventually going to result in the whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And here, again, as an encouragement, not now preparation for the servant, not now assurance to the soldiers, not now the supplication of a David, but now it is the seer and his encouragement and his assurance that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now you can, you can look at that statement. It's a wonderful statement. 
Incredible to think that a day is coming when there will be no corner of this earth where the name of Christ is not known and honored. That's going to happen. And I would take it, it's not just the idea of the, of the sea spreading everywhere, but I would gather there's depth to it. It's not something shallow. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, uh, there. it's the idea, isn't it, of, of depth and fullness. There's going to be such, a, an, a, such an enlargement in our appreciation of Christ and the world appreciating who he is and what he has done. And so we are reminded there. So he's telling it, what he's telling Habakkuk is, get your eye on the future. Get your eye on what is to come. He's looking around the audience. There's only a few that are my age. So there's only a few of you who may remember the name Florence Chadwick. Now, for those of you who are, have been born in the technological age, uh, you don't know the name of Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick was the first woman who swam the English Channel both ways. It was in the 19, I think around 1950. So she became quite famous throughout the world as a very, very accomplished swimmer. She had sw swam the English Channel both ways and had gained fame that way. 1952, she attempted swimming from Catalina Island, which is off the coast of California, back to the coast of California. And it was 1952, it was a very foggy, kind of a miserable day, and uh, she set off from the island of Catalina, and 15 hours on, she felt like giving up. And uh, of course, you know, the boats usually follow them for uh, different reasons, and uh, her mother was in one of the boats encouraging her, keep going, you're not, you don't have far to go, keep going. But finally, after 15 hours, Florence Chadwick just said, I can't go any further, just, just pull me out. And they pulled her out of the water. Once she got out of the water, she realized she was only a half mile from shore. And when she was interviewed the next day by the reporters, here's what she said. If I had known how close I was to, the, if I could have only have seen the shore, I think I could have made it. That's what God is telling his prophet here. Get your eye on the shore. Don't lose sight of the other shore. Don't lose sight of the future. Don't lose sight of what I am going to do. I am going not just to take care of the Chaldean nation. I am not just going in my time to judge them, but I am going to bring in the most amazing, most wonderful plan for this universe it has ever seen. And get your eye upon that. Now, I know we're looking for more than a millennial kingdom, but that's going to be a great start. It's going to be an incredible start to our eternity. A millennial kingdom, Christ reigning on earth, we reigning with him, co-regents with him, sharing in all of his glory, be, being used by him to reveal his glory to the nations. What a tremendous thing. Get your eye on the other shore, he says, and remember that the earth will be filled one day with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here then is a prospect to look to. But then he closes chapter 2 with these wonderful words. Instead of people crying out to dumb idols to speak. Instead of people asking them questions, he says, let all the earth keep silence. He says, let all the earth, God is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Here is a precept to learn from. Actually, the word here is hush in the original. Let all the earth hush. Now, you'll just have to look that up. Time doesn't allow it. It's used once in Nehemiah. 
It's used in Zephaniah and it's used in Zechariah, either silence or hush. And in every case, it's, it's men, men's mouths being shut because God is either rising up in judgment or God is rising up in proclamation or as we have here, God is in His holy temple. He Himself is the answer to everything. He Himself. You'll notice He is sitting in His holy temple. There has been no compromise of His character by anything He has done. He maintains His holiness despite all the events of earth. I mean, Habakkuk was, was struggling with this. How can God be righteous and God allow this to happen to his nation? He was trying to reconcile his concept of righteousness with the circumstances of his life and the circumstances of his nation. How can a holy God allow wicked men to triumph? Chapter 2 ends with this reminder. He says, as far as God is concerned... The Lord is in His holy temple. He has moved absolutely consistent with His character. That's part of faith. That's part of getting hold of who God is, that God is absolutely holy. He will never move contrary. In fact, not only He never will move, it's impossible for Him to move contrary to who He is. And while we may not always understand, we may not always be able to connect the dots like little children trying to figure out a puzzle. Someone has said that God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God hates lawlessness. God loves righteousness. And God sometimes will allow wickedness to have its way so that he can produce what he loves, righteousness in his, in his own people. And so we are reminded here in this final statement of chapter number two that all the earth keeps silence before him, that God is in his holy... He is a living God in contrast to all those idols. God is a God who is able to speak. Just, just quiet ourselves before him. And all the, amidst all the confusion, all the frenzy, all the uh, sense of being upset, he says, just, just hush. Just hush, like a, like a child, like a parent just settling their child. Now just hush. God is about to speak. And God is about to make, way his, make his ways known to us. And of course, then he comes to chapter 3, and we'll just briefly mention a few things. Notice the word of God. The, the word that Habakkuk received from God led to three things. It led to reverential fear, number one. Number two, it led to a request. And number three, at the end, that leads to rejoicing. Reverential fear. When he saw something of the greatness of God, of the majesty of God, of the holiness of God, of the wisdom of God, it's somewhat like Paul. He's gone through those chapters in Romans where he's taken them through God's dealings with individuals, God's dealing with nations, God's dealing with Israel. And at the end he says, oh, the, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. I'll just shut my mouth in his presence. And he is so tremendously awesome in all of his dealings. And so we are reminded here that it led to reverential fear. It led to a request. Revive thy work in the midst of years. And then at the end, it will lead to rejoicing at the end of the chapter. Revive thy work. Reveal thyself in power. Remember mercy. It's calling upon God in, in light. Yes, the future is secure. Yes, God's purposes will happen. But oh, that something might be seen in our own day 
of God's working and God's hand moving amongst us, even in our own generation. So he is crying to God then for this. And we see his psalm of praise. But I, I want to come, I want to just dwell for a few minutes on verses 17 to 19. He ends this brief three-chapter event, encounter, with some tremendous words. He's thinking of the scorched earth policy of the Chaldeans. They would come in and they would literally destroy everything. Scorched earth, just everything devastated. And as he thinks about that and thinks about the circumstances, he speaks of the fig tree. He speaks of the olive tree. He speaks as well of the vine. And that's Israel, isn't it, and all of its character, the, the fig, the olive, the vine. And he's thinking of a nation that is absolutely marked by failure, by fruitlessness, by famine conditions. And he looks around at the circumstances that the enemy will leave. And he's, he's absolutely, he's totally aware of their military policies. He knows what's going to happen when they invade. He knows what's going to be left. He knows that here is a nation that will be left with nothing. Nothing but God. Now, I, 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 I'm almost afraid to, to say things because I don't want to be tested. Because I am not very strong. But if we were left with nothing but God, could we repeat the words that Habakkuk repeats at the end of this chapter? I just found out recently, most of you are aware, know the name of John Newton, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace and a number of other, a number of other hymns that we sing, the former slave trader who was converted and saved. What I just found out was this, that when John's wife Mary died of cancer, John Newton took the funeral service, and John Newton read these words. Though the fig tree not, shall not blossom, there be no fruit on the vine. Labor, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know, he speaks of salvation three times in this third chapter. You just jot that down and look, look at it. The source, the scope, the subjects, and so on. Three times, but here he says, I will joy in the God of my... He looked at his circumstances, the failure of the nation, the fruitlessness of the nation, the famine conditions of the nation. All of that was very, very obvious. He wasn't, he wasn't a man living in a, a bubble, a man living in a make-believe world, a man living with his head in the clouds. He knew what was coming. You notice his commitment amidst all of that. I will. I will. I am determined, he says. And you may think determination is a, is a fruit of the flesh, but uh, here's a man he's determined that God is going to get praise regardless regardless of the circumstances of his own life. As I said, he was left with nothing but God. I think that's a, a, this is a tremendous testimony to this man. Left with nothing but God, and he praises God despite all of the circumstances of life. His determination, his delight, I will rejoice in the Lord, the covenant-keeping one, his discernment, there is a huge difference. Now, you hardly need me to come and tell you this. There's a huge difference between happiness and joy. 
I don't want to be trite. You all know that people say happiness is linked with happenings. There's nothing wrong with happiness. Nothing wrong with family happiness and happiness at, at occasions. Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> but joy can only be found in what cannot be lost. Joy can only be found in what cannot be lost. And he joys in God, and he joys in his salvation. Things that cannot be lost. The enemy may come in. They may take everything away materially. They may take everything away physically. But they cannot take away his God and cannot take away his salvation. I will joy in the God of my salvation. His confidence. Look at what he says at the end. The Lord is the Lord God is my strength. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet and make me to walk upon mine high places. Strength, swiftness, and stability. How will I walk? How will I continue to walk for God in amidst all of these circumstances? He will make my feet like hinds feet. I will walk upon my high places. I will be able to walk and I will not, I will not stumble with absolute confidence in God and satisfaction with God alone. Everything that was lacking in the nation was found in this man. Amazing, isn't it? Here's a man marked by fruitfulness. Here's a man marked by faithfulness. Here's a man marked by fidelity to God. Let me just close. I should mention, it's as though he says here, he hands it off. Take this to the chief musicians and put it to music and let's sing about this from now on. Actually, there was a man named Isaac Ewan, a man from Scotland, previous generation. Some of his hymns and some of his poetry is first rate. Let me just read you something he wrote. Though never a blossom the fig tree shall wear, though the vines in the season are blasted and bare, though the olive tree only be labor in vain, and no meat shall be found in the field or the plain, though the last of the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be not a herd in the stalls to behold. Yet the prophet declares, I'll rejoice in the Lord, yet the God of salvation can pleasure afford. Yet my strength in Jehovah, my Lord, I shall find, and I'll leap on the mountains of truth like the hind. In the day of adversity, never forget Habakkuk's though and Habakkuk's yet. Though the day may be dark and the road may be rough, and the troubles increase when there's trouble enough, Though the best of intentions are misunderstood and the harvest of hope be but evil for good. Though the smiles become frosty that used to be fair and the winter sets in with a nip in the air. Yet rejoice in the Lord and remember it well that you would have been but for his mercy in hell. So rejoice in the Lord amid famine and dearth. He's the maker and owner of heaven and earth. Till you leap like the hind on the mountains of truth. In the day of adversity, never forget Habakkuk's though and Habakkuk's yet. May God bless his word to us all.